Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in today's episode. This is episode 210. 210. Uh, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, I was here at 11 last week, but you wouldn't let me in. I think you were trying to hide from the listeners that uh, I caught the whale on the fishing trip. I caught the whale, and uh, we didn't even have to measure this this whale, Ryan. Everyone knew this was this was going to win the day. So uh, well, just want to let our listeners know you sabotaged my appearance last week to uh, prevent that from coming out. Well, let me help you out. If you were here at 11, the show ends at 11. So that's why. That's why. We go from 10 to 11. So if you're here at 11, then that's what you said. Then you were just late. You're just late. So you, you just came in late. I can't help it if you show up late for work. You, <laughs> I was here till 11. Till 11. Till 11. Till 11. Huh? Til til 11. 11. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Josh did catch the Megalodon. There was no no doubt about it. I think I put pictures. I don't know if I put the picture of the Megalodon up or not. Uh, we destroyed them. And uh, thanks to Reed Goodman, he finally paid off his bet from over a year ago, or about a year ago, so it, took, it takes him a while to pay, but you know he's good for it eventually. That's what you said about Reed. He's eventually good for what he said. So uh, now it's good for Reed, uh, good for us to go. And thanks to Reed for um, footing the bill on a lost bet. And so um, we had a, had a blast. And if anyone wants to know who we use or whatever, when we go down there, uh, hit me up. I'll be happy to send you the the skip's name that we use. It was insane, man. It was insane. Like I like I think about it almost every day. We caught so many fish. It's so for those of you, we'll do a quick fishing dive trap here. Um, for those of you who've been like perch fishing or brim fishing, where you're just dropping the pole in the water and you're catching fish, like, okay, you, we're not fishing like that, but when that fishing's good, this is what that was, especially that second day early that morning. We we're just throwing in the water, catching trout left and right. I mean, we must have caught, we only kept, we we're gonna keep 20, but we probably caught God, what, 40, 50 trout that morning. Yeah, we we caught our limit within about 45 minutes. I remember at one point it was like, do we want to just keep fishing and just catching and throwing them back as we've already caught our limit after like 45 minutes or do we want to go try to search for the, yeah, we, the we, we, well, the video that, uh, that we recorded, I think it was like at seven thirty-two, And so we were limited out by like seven thirty-five, seven thirty-four, something like that. Mm-hmm. It was like that, that early in the morning I had caught my five by like seven fifteen, seven fourteen. 14. Um, obviously for those of you who are wondering, I caught the most fish because, obvious reasons and i had the big fish of the day this is what frustrates me i had the big fish of the day the first day it was the, it was the bet was most total fish that you keep and big fish total big fish i had the big fish of the day nice fish 25 inches uh, redfish and then josh lands this megalodon in the last hour of the first day and no one ever came close to that thing oh my gracious it was ridiculous uh to be fair you also probably had the biggest shark on but like <laughs> It never came close to being landed. We no. never close to being landed that thing, but that thing, no. <laughs> it was funny. Josh, said, yeah. Throw, throw I was, yeah, you're in the boat throwing towards the bank, and Josh is like, I think it's off. <laughs> I don't know who it was. Like, no, it's swimming too towards us. Yeah. <laughs> the next thing, you see the line go past the boat, and you just hear, <laughs> it was, it was pulling. It brought flashbacks from the movie Jaws, where yes. it kicks off those things. I was, you know, my thoughts were, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> we need to pull this thing boat. in. This it was, was a huge fish. It, well, a huge shark, at least. So, uh, but no, we had a good time. And if anyone else wants to take us fishing, I think we're up here, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do it. No obligation. Uh, just fishing trips. 
yeah uh, we're, that we're is... game fishing you know we do a little hunting so you know if you if you think you know how do i pay back josh and ryan for all they've done for me then that's that's one way to start is fishing trips um we are we are easy easy in that regard and so um you know it's um it was good man it was good it's it's one of those things where you go that that trip was probably the we call it what so it was 32 fish you catch a day we caught 32 fish each day um just absolutely slaughtered them and probably will never go back and have uh fishing like that again it would be hard to duplicate up it like that but yeah. if someone wants to try if someone says you know what hey i want to try and figure out what's going on how do we get this then uh then let us know. We'll be uh, we'll be more than happy to to take it. So, but yeah, Josh, it's good for you to good for you to be back. Good for you to be here. And uh, oil prices are sitting right now at seventy three WTI seventy five Brent, which reminds me that at the end of this episode, I have a podcast called Inside the War Room. That's Inside the War Room, and I had the good Doctor Anas Alhajian talking about a lot of stuff, oil and gas. I will play a clip. It's about eight minutes. Him talking about inflation and how that connects to oil prices. Um, so you can catch the first part of that interview right there at the end of this podcast. So stay tuned for that. Um, and then you can go listen to the full podcast at Inside the War Room. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but Josh, we have a couple guests on today. So let's get to our first one. If you're on, put it up here on the big screen. Let's see here. There we go. If you're on the, twi- <laughs> the Twitter sphere, uh, you might know him as Landman Life at Landman Life or LandmanLife.com. Uh, it is good to have you on. I think we can officially say that your first name is Gates, right? That's as far as we can go for legal reasons. I am Gates Miller. <laughs> oh, and for the okay. past, I guess, 10 and a half, 11 years, I have been the name on the internet known as Landman Life. Wow, coming out with the big dogs. And, and just <laughs> folks, I don't know if we got it or not. I feel like we got some of the original Landman Life swag a few years ago back. Uh, so still got that, still use that. So it's good to have you on. What got – so this is a 30-second background here. On Twitter, there is a, a hashtag EFT. There's kind of a group of people who are oil and gas professionals. And I kind of watch the EFT crowd from afar. I'm not really – in the group, I know some of the people in the group, but it's kind of just kind of watch uh, your account and several others. And I saw this weekend that you were um, frustrated that you had gotten a cease and desist letter because part of what you have is you have a swag shop where you sell. Yeah, there it is, where you sell kind of parody merchandise for oil and gas companies, and it's kind of poking fun at shell companies in the industry and whatever. And uh, after the Texas freeze, you expanded that to ERCOT. And so, as you can see here, if you're watching the video, but those, those who aren't, you've got a hat that says Burkot, B-R-R-C-O-T. And apparently, Urcot reached out and said, no moss. No moss with the Burkot. What happened, man? So, there's a little more background to the story on that. It was February 16th when I first started selling the Burkot-designed merchandise. We were sitting at home couldn't leave the house because all the streets were frozen. Uh, most people were out of power, out of water. I sat there on my computer and started working on something. And I've got a creative team, as I like to call them, a group of about 10 to 15 individuals who I bounce ideas off of, things like that, to hone in on refining the designs before I 
post anything up for sale in the store. Somebody on the creative team reached out to me and said, hey, you should do something with Burkott. And I thought that was a, a pretty good suggestion. So I started working on that. And once it went up for sale, Chuck Yates was in the process of trolling ERCOT on Twitter. He was taking the uh, page where they had posted all of the board members' names and qualifications and things like that, <clears throat> and individually addressing each board member on his own Twitter account saying, you know, this person is from Michigan. I'm sure they know a lot about how Texas works, things like that. When he saw that I had posted the Burkott merchandise, he immediately sent me a text message and said, hey, I want you to send some of this stuff to every single one of these board members and I will pay for it. <laughs> send me the bill and I will finance the project. So Chuck and I, we've kind of been friends for a while now, and I know that he's kind of a goofy guy. So I had to make sure that he was being serious about this at first. And then once I actually started working on that, it got a lot harder because ERCOT took their webpage down that showed a list of all of the board members because they were catching so much flack in the media and online about having all of these people who are being paid quite a lot of money to regulate the energy grid in the state of Texas when they are not actual Texans. Some of them, I don't know if they've ever even been to Texas, to be honest. We had Canadian companies, people from Michigan, California, all over the place. So when they took that page down, I had to use the Wayback Machine to find the archive of all of the board members. And I believe we ended up sending, it was a Burkott coffee mug, a Burkott face mask, and a Burkott sticker to 21 of the then current or past board members. A few days after that happened was when they evidently had all of the out-of-state board members resign. So once they started receiving all of these packages, we had two of them that actually got returned. We heard back from one of the board members who actually said it was a great-looking coffee mug. <laughs> and I figured that was the end of it. Right. Saturday morning, I got to the office. I was putting together a bunch of packages. Okay, we're fast forwarding yes. to this Saturday morning now. Yeah. And how long between the time you sent the swag to the set uh, two days ago? Uh, we sent the swag in late February. Okay, so it's been out there. For, it's been out there for a while. It, it took you a little while to find right. it, but it still was. Out, it's been out there for a few months now. And to be honest, I totally forgot that I even had any of this stuff on the site because I haven't sold any Burkott merchandise for months now. Mm -hmm. it wasn't a pressing issue and mm -hmm. I am currently working on a new design for the um, summer blackouts that we're about to start experiencing across the state so when I got that letter Saturday morning 
I was pretty surprised. I honestly thought it was a joke at first. When I read through it, I, I sent you guys the letter, so I know that y'all have mm-hmm. read through it as well. But basically, they're trying to say that Landman Life using Burkott is tarnishing their image. Mm-hmm. Well, let, yeah, let's, let's dissect that real quick. So a couple things. Um, we did get a copy of the letter that, that, you, that you said, so we've... We we reviewed that, and um, you know the, the the disclosure on the text on guest podcast side is is we're taking we're we're trying to dissect what's, that dissect what's going on here because for us it's a little frustrating that um, that ERCOT let this happen. We've talked about this, we've had people on about this, and so we we're, we're pretty frustrated with this. Um, kind of Josh and I talked about this before you came on offline, and the frustrating thing for me was is they said you can't use the term Burkot, which is B R R C O T. I don't know how they can claim that. That seems tough. Using their logo, I, I could understand them them saying that. I don't know about parody enough to know what the what you can and can't do there. I do think I had to hear more and think think through it a little bit more. It's kind of all fresh and happening. But the Burkot, like you can't say Burkot. Like I don't know how they could claim that, especially with um, you know like Saturday Night Live and all the parody stuff that we've seen over the years. So the logo, I, I maybe there's a case. I have no idea. I'm not a lawyer, but the fact that they said you can't say Burkot, so everyone's clear. It's two things. It's not just the logo. It's the B-R-R-C-O-T. To me, that's preposterous. So for a government-funded agency to be paying to employ an intellectual property law firm to contact us for this was a little outrageous to me. So the first thing that I did, I forwarded that letter over to our attorneys and our attorneys at Holmes Law PLLC in Houston. I heard you and Ben talking about Rocket Lawyer earlier. (laughs) Yeah. If you need to actually have a real attorney, uh, (laughs) call up Holmes Law. They'll take care of you guys. I sent that over to uh, Tommy Holmes, who's the principal attorney there. And, uh, his response was, screw that, screw them, go ahead and keep it up. He happened to be at a function with quite a few of the uh, larger names in the Texas Republican Party. And he started sharing with some of those people the letter. And everybody got a good laugh out of that because... ERCOT is not a commercial company. They cannot claim that I have actually done commercial damages that would prevent them from doing business. So the cases that they're citing in this letter actually have no application for government-run agency. Mm -hmm. They're funded based off of a surcharge on all of our electric bills. Right. So let me ask you this, because um, play devil's advocate here, whether it's ERCOT or some of the other stuff you have on, on the website, and I don't have a full roster in front of me. I, don't have to, I had it pulled up, but I closed it out. On some level, there's it seems like you're trying to accomplish uh, maybe two or three things. One, you're trying to, well, first off, you're trying to sell swag, and good on you for that, okay? <laughs> like, it's like I told you the other day, I got to start a swag shop. I'm, I'm a little jealous of you, because it seems like it seems like that's been pretty successful. So good on you for that. Two, you're trying to poke fun at things that either maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're not. You just find them funny, um, but you are kind of 
you're, you're playing the, the not the villains right word, but you're, you're poking at stuff, right? So are you surprised that it's taken so long to kind of get pushed back from some corporate entity, whether they're government regulated or not, because you are kind of poking the bear on some level. I am not surprised. We've gotten demand letters about stuff in the past. I was surprised that okay. it came from ERCOT. Okay. I got you. So this isn't the first time you've had it. This is the first time it came from a public entity. I've learned a lot more about copyright and trademark law than I had ever intended to. <laughs> okay. So you've gotten a cease and desist letter, which essentially means you should take down all the stuff off your store. Um, if someone like myself happened to log on the website this weekend and buy some of that stuff, obviously, and it got shipped to me because I was charged for it. And I were to display it on my laptop. It was like a sticker. You know, obviously that's one thing, but what do you do moving forward? Like, do you continue to fight this legally? Like what, what's next for people who are, um, because there's, there is a sense in which kind of lampooning things, um, and, 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 and taking them to task without writing a dissertation is a way that the common guy can do stuff, right? You can kind of make fun of ERCOT by calling him Burcott. And we all get it. We all get the joke. We froze to death. Some of us literally, but we froze to death um, figuratively for days on end across the state of Texas. And so the fact that we want to take them to the task, this is one of the ways that we do it. So how do you proceed moving forward? Do you have to take it down? Can you continue? What are your options? And you want to give us the full disclosure, but where can people follow you to understand or to, to, to follow the story moving forward? You can follow Landman Life on pretty much all social medias. We've got an account on Facebook, Twitter. Of course, we've got the webpage, landmanlife.com. I've been in touch with our legal counsel, and the next move is for ERCOT because we're not taking anything down. And if they really want to move forward, that's fine. We'll go straight to the press. And we'll see if they really want to continue to drag their own name through the mud. Yeah. It's one of those things where God, it's it. They're not in, they don't have good publicity right now. And so it's, it's a weird time to fight this battle, especially if we do, if we do have summer blackouts um, and, and ERCOT is the, the culprit once again, Boy, it is a bad time from a PR standpoint. It's one of those times where sometimes in life you just got to take the L. You know, you just got to take the L. Even if the other guy's wrong, you still got to take the L because it's something else. Um, and, you know, it's like Josh on this podcast. You're not showing up for work last week and trying to trying to work around it. He's got to take the L. Josh, you got to take the L, man. You weren't here last week. But I don't care what kind of fish you caught. You got to take the L. Um, but, you know, it, but you got to take the L. And so I think they, you know, ERCOT is welcome to come on this podcast if they want to. Um, and we'll be following the story. Um, it's, you know, obviously it's not something we cover this kind of stuff on the podcast regularly, but it was something that it's like, okay, this is, this is a really weird thing that's happening here that they are focused on this when in what, two weeks ago, they're telling us to run our temperatures at 82. And and I get it. I get ERCOT's like, well, we've got different departments. I, I get all that. I get it. It's just still a weird time. So um, anyways, we'll give you the last word, tell people where they can find you and uh, anything else you want to say. Yeah, they got a podcast Land, as well, so plug that too. Landmanlife.com. We are in the process of launching our first two podcasts, hopefully sometime next week. Uh, for sure, by mid-July, we'll have a couple episodes out for you guys. We've got a great group of people helping us out. We're headed in some 
new directions and we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. This has been short notice and we're trying to get the schedule worked out. And so, um, We'll be following along, and uh, maybe when this is re- uh, get some resolution or whatever, get you back on to kind of follow up to see what what happened. So appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, guys. What do you think, Joshua? You think they're going to win? I'd be a little nervous about going up against ERCOT. ERCOT, you you scared the big boy? Uh, anybody that's government, man. Know, I just think man. FBI, Fed, CIA. <laughs> well, listen, you start getting them three letters, I ain't want none of that. Four or five letter agency, that's fine. But three yeah, letters, FBI, yeah. NSA, CIA, uh, I'm scared of those guys. I don't get the McAfee or the Epstein treatment. I don't know that. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I think our next guest is here and ready. There he is. Let's bring you up the big screen. Hey, How's it going today, bit. sir? Uh, pretty good. It's a little hot in my apartment. Uh, the AC's been out the entire month of June. And oh, so- no. It's a little toasty in here, I guess. Oh, say. no. Well, why don't you introduce yourself, uh, who you are and who you're with for the audience, and so we'll get into it. Yes. So my name is William Villalobos. I'm a senior petroleum engineering student here at Texas A&M University. Uh, the main purpose of why I'm here is to talk about my conference that I hosted in April with the Texas Railroad Commission. Um, the title of the conference is Oil and Gas Health, Health Safety and environment summit from the perspective of academia regulatory and industry representatives and the main topics that we talked about uh was hydraulic fracturing well control flaring and uh carbon carbon related issues and uh yeah it's it's been quite a road uh a lot of opportunities a lot of discussion especially in regards to the carbon relations ultimately Mm -hmm. with the public Mm -hmm. and uh yeah it's it's pretty interesting, uh, depending on what the which perspective you take. <laughs> okay, so before, let's, let's talk about the conference. You said you're a senior, that's correct, at AM? Yes, yes, sir, here at okay. College Station. So, just for those who are listening, and they're, you know, we have people that reach out from time to time and say, I think about going into the industry or going back to get a degree, um, the job market, what's it like? So, give us maybe a high level uh, what you're hearing about potential jobs as you get ready to graduate. Man. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, kind of interesting when I'm starting with that time frame, is because uh, I've had friends, in, they had their internships redacted simply because of the market crash. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the price of oil going like negative something. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like even Noble Energy like shut me out. So, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, but anyways, uh, yeah, it's looking a lot better now. Um, I'm mainly t- taking the last of my class and uh, studying for my board exam. I want to get my professional engineering's license, and uh, yeah, uh, for my friends that are see, that don't have internships already, um, they've got some this summer, and so it's looking good for us. Okay, so let's talk about the conference. You mentioned y'all covered a wide array of topics. What was maybe some of the big takeaways that you had from it? The big takeaways. Something that I didn't know is regarding well control, I've heard of frack hits and frack bashings. And for, according to Larry Nixon, uh, who's had 40 years of experience in well control, he was talking about how drilling blowouts is not the case anymore, or like the case of blowouts. They tend to be more of frack hits or frack bashings, whichever term you prefer. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's more of a, a financial and legal issue as well because that frack hit necessarily doesn't communicate to your own well. It can communicate to somebody else's. And that's where, um, again, it's not only a financial and legal uh, aspect to look into for this. 
And outside of the well control situation there, uh, the Texas Railroad Commission was very adamant of uh, flaring emissions reduction and uh, nothing really about a carbon tax or anything like that. So I guess that's good. And regarding hydraulic fracturing, everything's fine. Everything, we just simply uh, laid down some baselines for the public for the public to be informed about. And so uh, I, would, I would say those are the main key takeaways. I would love to elaborate more on the well control stuff. Um, but, uh, well, you, you mentioned uh, the carbon capture was a pretty interesting topic that y'all covered uh, there, Will. Um, I know that there's been, you mentioned there wasn't any carbon tax. Uh, there have been companies that are claiming to be uh, neutral, you know, carbon neutral. Uh, what were what were the discussions like around the carbon? Like, What are the main, um, I know you mentioned flaring, but what are the main angles that the Railroad Commission are planning to take with regard to carbon? Hmm. Essentially, regulation towards reducing the amount of uh, carbon emissions or fugitive emissions that we the industry commits, and uh, increasing outside from the industry industry and academic perspective is uh, researching uh, other ways of how to essentially recycle some of the carbons that we produce, such as like uh, injecting them into the reservoirs for EOR applications to enhance oil recovery. Yeah. Um, but an industry from that from the academic perspective, uh, Dr. Hill, who's also works with the Railroad Commission, his perspective was very um, pessimistic because uh, the effectiveness of essentially trying to make this economical and the volumes of CO two that we would have to recycle is uh, it's it's simply just not financially worthy. But uh, compared to what, like API, the American Petroleum Institute, I, I should probably mention who all was there first, real fast. So Dr. Hassan, which was from the Ocean Energy Safety, he was a moderator. Uh, Commissioner Christy Craddock, she listened in towards the ending portion and gave a speech about what the regulate, what the Texas Railroad Commission is wanting to do. Dr. Hill, he's uh, uh, he works here at the Hall Advanced Department of Petroleum Engineering. Uh, Mr. Backlund, who was the HSC director, or who is the HSC director for Helmer Champagne International Drilling Company, uh, Emily Haig from the American Petroleum Institute, and Larry Nixon from CUD Well Control. Uh, back to uh, the carbon discussion. Yeah, Dr. Hill was essentially elaborating about how uh, it's it's not going to be. It's going to take some time to develop some of these uh, technologies regarding CO2. And uh, from the industry perspective is that they're pushing more initiatives to how to actually improve that technology, how to implement it uh, into their reservoirs, et cetera. And so, it, it, I mean, it's at least it's in the discussion portion. Uh, I would need to see more proof of its implement, implementation. For some reason, I'm thinking about uh, my research actually with Marathon Oil that I had two years ago. Uh, that was essentially looking for an alternative other than CO2. You were using a combination of uh, C1 and C2, which is methane and ethane, uh, which ultimately resulted in relatively close uh, results of uh, EOR applications when compared to uh, carbon dioxide, CO2. Um, so it, it, at, least, at least they're poking around to see what is best. Um, that's another thing I feel like mentioning. Yeah. So what are the, 
you know, if you have, you know, government looking to regulate and then the free markets trying to figure out how to navigate, what was kind of the, the balance between what the, the, the private industry was doing thinking versus what some of the regulators were talking about? Uh, yeah, industry is definitely pushing, at least everybody that was there was definitely pushing towards uh, being in the favor of what the regulators want, which is less CO2 emissions. And their ways was to see in different ways of how to implement that or how to reduce it. And uh, I mean, that's the, that's the very basis of it. So I, if I was to put it in percentages, um, yeah, uh, like 70, 80% from the industry of implementation and then like the, and more in the background is uh, what the Railroad Commission wants is uh, the policy, the potential policy that they're going to put forth. Because I, I think that's kind of the thing that foreshadow, because last thing industry wants, I would consider is more regulations towards this. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned the, the frack hits. Uh, you said you had some more on that. What was that? The frack hits. Uh, yeah, so the baseline of a frack hit is essentially when you're doing hydraulic fracturing operations and you accidentally, um, I've never heard of purposeful issues of this, but uh, accidentally communicate uh, towards another well and ca cause another ground blow or surface fluids to go out the surface of some another well. Um, some dilemma that I heard as well is sometimes these frack hits essentially kill somebody else's well. And that's where the legal issue comes in. Like, who covers this from an insurance perspective as well? Um, that's that's like a tug of war. Like, who who has to essentially compensate who for this? Um, I, I got a question for you. So, one of the things that's happening out in New Mexico when they were uh, doing these water injections, uh, or they had uh, saltwater disposal wells, um, I'm, I'm wondering about the injections with CO2 and sort of there is seismic activity that was happening around these areas. Is that anything that was discussed by the Royal Commission? Is that an issue on the Texas side or is it something that they're not not as concerned about? So from the Royal Commission perspective, I know if it that didn't exist, they wouldn't have regulations for it. So it definitely does exist. Let's put that out there. Um, if it was my my question towards that seismic activity due to over preservation of, of uh, disposal wells is uh, usually when they're near fault line is uh, if it's regularly enforced and why are they still occurring and uh, and the big debate that was in the summit is okay you have these artificially induced earthquakes it's kind of like well they're not causing any sort of structural damage. And so, I mean, these earthquakes, even though they're artificially induced, it's uh, it's none, it's a insignificant concern simply because they don't cause any structural damage. Mm -hmm. I kind of, whichever perspective, it, it kind of seems like a wrong place for your head to be for that one. But I'm um, simply because I, I guess what perspective you take, but from a public perspective, Nobody wants to live with seismic activity or an earthquake or tremor, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so from my, from my perspective and from the interest of the public from a, as a incoming engineer, I think there needs to be more enforcement towards that. And um, yeah, it's 
the main examples that you can see of this is in Oklahoma, simply because they have a, I forgot what the, the basin is. Uh, but yeah, they have, you can find multiple case studies of seismic induced or artificially induced earthquakes in that region. And so if you, you can actually Google, Dr. Hill actually worked on this TextNet seismic, you can Google that. And you can see all the seismic activities, uh, even in magnitudes uh, for the state of Texas. And what was most interesting is where we do our, most of our, the majority of our disposal wells. And just to cover this part as well, usually disposal wells, from my understanding, is that uh, they're usually depleted reservoirs. And because they're no longer economically viable for oil production, we just simply convert them uh, to essentially big trash cans, <laughs> industrial trash cans. All right. So tell us a little bit more about the organization for those who aren't familiar. I know we have some Aggies that probably listen, but uh, you, you, what, what you guys have going on, where people can find out more about um, what you guys are doing, and do you have more events like this coming up in the future? So uh, I did this event uh, with the International Association of General Contractors, uh, the Texas A&M Student Chapter. Uh, an upcoming event I'm considering of hosting is with the World Petroleum Council. Uh, we're looking to start a student chapter here at Texas A&M, um, I guess me as a or head organizer of it. And uh, I think frack hits is a discussion we're looking to take on because it's more of a modern issue as well, because we didn't used to, like, we don't frack conventional wells. There's no need to. And so with these unconventional wells that we're doing, uh, there's a higher likelihood uh, of this occurrence. And hence, while the well control guys, there is no longer a drilling blowout that they're having to look out for, advise people uh, for. It's, it's these completion operations that can uh, can have a misfortune. <laughs> Everywhere. Right. Yeah. right. And you have a website or a Facebook group or something for, for people to follow along at? Uh, I would just Google my name, uh, William Villalobos Tamu, and usually you'll see articles and interviews that I've had uh, where you can find all the different links that I, I usually mention. So okay. William, William Villalobos Tamu. All right, so we will we will just put that in the show notes um, for folks who are looking. And the final thing is, we like I said earlier, kind of, kind of go back to the student thing. Um, for folks who are considering maybe going going to school, uh, to kind of doing what you're doing, uh, what would you recommend? Maybe uh, you know, what are bits of the harder things that you've had to do in school? Well, uh, I think outside of the academia, A and M is another level, and it's a good thing that it's another level because it makes more, it makes us feel more professional. And um, so, outside of that, though, I think uh, joining a professional organization such as IEDC or like SPE or ADE or whichever, even outside of petroleum engineering, um, uh, Texas A and M is a great school for engineering overall. Uh, but from that, I think uh, when you join these professional orgs, not only do you potentially get sponsored to go to like Italy or something, that's where I got sponsored to go. Um, they introduce you to these different topics and people uh, of like-mindedness. And uh, I think that's a great uh, way to professionally develop yourself if that's what you want. 
there's other organizations if you have other interests, but it depends on who you are and what you want. All right. Well, listen, uh, best luck to you guys in the future. We'll link to this in the show notes. And uh, if you have events or whatever, feel free to email it to us and we'll try to mention it on the podcast. Um, I know we try to get you on here for quite some time, so it's good to finally get you on and speak with you. And hopefully, hopefully get the AC fixed, man. <laughs> I do, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's 100 degrees. Yeah. I'm, I'm like in, I'm like in, oh, man. I'm huh? like in uh, pool clothes over here. Yes. Yeah, so I, well, I, I noticed you uh, when you were uh, back screen, you had the tank top. I thought, well, sun's out, gun's out. This, this dude <laughs> like that. But now I see you just, you just hot. So it's uh, sweating. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, brother. Well, listen, thank you so much and best of luck to you and uh, all the stuff you got going on down there, man. All right, I appreciate it. Have a good one. Take care. All right, Mr. Shelton. Um, We got a roundup today? Yeah, we got a couple things uh, we can can hit real quick. So oil prices near 2018 highs ahead of uh, OPEC meeting. So this article was released on the 28th. That would be today at 4.10 a.m. this morning. So I guess a OPEC meeting is on the horizon. And it looks like oil prices are, are doing pretty well. Yep. Um, I believe they crossed 70 when we were fishing. Uh, yeah. I believe it was 69 when we started and 70 when we finished. So uh, if you want to see oil prices go up, take me fishing. And uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we, will, we, will, we will get those numbers up. Uh, oh, these are just rookie numbers. Just uh, All right. Uh, and then two more, Ryan. Um, Texas oil upstream oil and gas sector continues to add jobs. Um, and then, so that's just article just talking about the job market. There's a couple of another article I saw about Midland market unemployment rates were, were dropping. So um, interesting reads out there today. And then there was one more, um, I believe enterprise. Um, I don't even have the, the article pulled up right now. Let me see if I can go back to it. Uh, Enterprise Magellan and ICE to launch a new futures contract. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to take a look just to get up to speed on what's going on there, take a look at that. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Um, and also at the end, just stay on because we'll have that eight minute, I think it's an eight minute clip from Anas from inside the war room. And with that, keep coming. How much is inflation impacting oil prices right now? Well, and real quick before we answer that, break down if it is impacting them, how is it impacting them? Because sometimes we just say inflation, but we don't understand exactly how that works. Okay, I'm going to take my time here explaining these issues because these issues are very important. Some of them are economics 101, but it's very important for everyone to hear. When we talk about oil prices causing inflation, we have to remember that we are talking about a vicious cycle. What that means is inflation leads to higher oil prices, higher oil prices lead to inflation, and then the cycle goes on. The problem is that with this cycle, because the oil producing countries in the Gulf link their currencies to the dollar and the dollar uh, is used to price oil, we end up with a serious problem because with inflation, the real value of their exports decline. So the value of every exported barrel of oil declines in this case. So what we are going to see uh, as a result of this vicious cycle that what nominal oil prices might increase, but real oil prices that are received by those countries did not improve much. So don't expect that much improvement just on the higher nominal uh, uh, price. 
the the whole literature about the relationship between oil prices, inflation, and economic growth in the consuming countries is not only weak, most of it is flawed. And the reason why, if you take even the, the most praised uh, academic papers in the field about how oil causes negative economic growth or slows economic growth, you take oil from those equations and substitute that with higher interest rate or decline in government revenues, you get the same results. That shows you how flawed the literature is on this. Higher oil prices on their own do not cause inflation. Higher oil prices on their own do not cause negative economic growth or slow economic growth. If you look at the period between 2004 and 2008, oil prices jumped 50, 60, 70, 80, 140, 147. We did not see any impact on, uh, on inflation or on economic growth. Economies in Europe, United States, China, India, were growing like crazy. So where are those theories that were born in the 70s and all those papers that's been talking about this? Where did that impact? Well, the reason what, what they failed was the following. What really affect the economy are the macroeconomic variables. And here we talk about government expenditures. We talk about military expenditures. We talk about changes in taxation. We talk about interest rates. We talk about the value of the dollar. So if, if oil prices are rising and governments are afraid that they are, they are going to cause uh, inflation, unemployment, et cetera, like people believe, governments have enough tools to combat that. And that's what they did, because after September 11th in 2001, what we've seen is we've seen massive expenditures on security on one side and military on the other. We had two wars. So expenditures basically increased substantially. And because they were afraid that's going to affect the economy, we've seen massive increase in government the normal government expenditures. At the same time, interest rate was going down. The dollar value was going down. That was during the George Bush era where taxes went down. Those variables, basically, the impact of them on the economy were so huge that even a price of 140 did not impact the economy. The same thing for India, the same thing for China. We, even in 2011, 2012, prices at $100, when we reached $100 in 2012, 2013, did not affect those economies. So we have a complete kind of general misunderstanding of how oil prices affect the economy and therefore how they affect inflation and how they affect the, uh, the overall uh, economic growth. So the problem we have, just a final point. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. A final point. Uh, the, some of the impact of inflation comes through the dollar devaluation. Because what is inflation? Inflation, when prices goes up, that means the money value goes down. So the dollar goes down. That's where the largest impact comes from inflation on oil. It's through the currency. Because oil is priced in dollar. And therefore, some people believe we have this constant inverse relationship between the dollar value and oil prices. So if the dollar value goes down, then oil prices should instantly goes up. 
That's absolutely not correct. And there is no economic theory to support it. Uh, what happened is in 2000, the, during the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, uh, people pulled their money out of the financial markets, out of the stock market, et cetera. They were scared. They want to take, put it in some safe place. Usually the safe place is real estate. But we know the collapse happened because of real estate. So they have to go to commodities. And that's where some people felt that there is this relationship between the decline in the dollar and the higher, and, and the higher price. Because people were running away from the dollar, they were running away from real estate, or running away from the stock market. So later on, when they programmed the computers, they programmed them based on this idea. So we made it happen because we wanted to. But in reality, we have a lot of evidence to show that neither in theory nor in numbers, uh, empirical studies basically, to show that this relationship exists. But it does exist in the medium term and the long term. And that is very important because with lower dollar, we end up with the following situation. Now the Chinese can buy more with the same amount of, of yuan they have. In fact, I've written in, uh, I think it was in 2006, uh, I, I've written an article saying that revaluation uh, of the UN is going to lead to uh, um, a crisis in the oil market and unprecedented prices. And it happened because the dollar went down and the Chinese can buy more with the same amount of money. The same thing for everyone else in Europe and other places. And there are many charts that I put out on, on the web and several presentations where it shows the difference between oil priced in dollar versus other currencies. Oil was cheap, although at 100, 140, was cheap for some of those countries because of the differences in currencies. Just imagine mm -hmm. the euro being at 170, a dollar 70, uh, instead of a dollar 10. And you can see how the difference will be in, in oil in this case. So quantity demanded in this case will go up because of that. The second one, the second point is the oil producing countries are getting less real value because what oil producing countries do, they, they export that oil and with that money, they import stuff. But if they import from China, they import from Europe, then they are losing money because their currencies went up, but all the money they are getting are in dollars. So a barrel of oil can buy less and therefore they don't have enough money to expand investment on extra capacity or maintenance or everything else. And therefore supply decreases in this case. So it happens in the medium term, long term, but not in the short term. So the bottom line of this is the impact of inflation on oil is mostly through the, the uh, exchange rates, not directly from uh, the market.